On almost every footballer's CV is a surprise entry. A promotion bid in the lower leagues. A three-game sabbatical north of the border. A failed loan stint in the Bulgarian second division. Sometimes they kickstart an ailing career. Other times they pale into insignificance. This episode is about identifying and illuminating unusual player and club combinations. Those like Royston Drenter and Reading make you go, did he really play there? Arthur, great to welcome you onto this show. Very exciting. A uh, lot of interesting, nostalgic names to discuss today. We're playing a 4-3-3 system, which is quite attacking in keeping with uh, our ethos here at the Eleven. Yeah, gung-ho. We, that's what we are. Mm. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter, at 11pod. It's the word, not the number. Uh, we want your suggestions of player and club combinations that you find most peculiar. So goalkeepers, potentially one of the most loyal positions in football, Arthur, but I'm sure there are several that have had peculiar stints where we're asking, did he play there? Who have you picked? So I've gone for Ed De Hoy. Oh, okay. So the former Chelsea goalkeeper. The, the right? former Chelsea goalkeeper. He, he was actually a very loyal player in football. Yeah. Um, he uh, started his career in the Eredivisie with Sparta Rotterdam. Uh, where he broke into the first team in 85-86. Yeah. Um, and over his five years with the club, he helped them to a mid-table uh, finish um, and essentially establishing them as a mid-table club. And I think those were the performances that got him his big move to Rotterdam's big club, which was Feyenoord. I've seen Feyenoord live. Have you? Yeah, great stadium, actually. Really you, liked it there. I think on this podcast, I've discovered that you have watched an awful lot of niche Dutch football. Yeah, I went on a trip with my dad to watch some pre-season <laughs> matches in Holland, which was very random, but enjoyable. Classic. So at Feyenoord, in his first season, they finished mid-table, but they did win the cup. Mm. Uh, and it was a steady rise in the 92-93 season. Uh, his Feyenoord side went on to lift the Dutch Eredivisie title and the next season he was awarded the Dutch Golden Shoe which is a prize mm. awarded by newspaper De Telegraph and football manager Voetbal International for the best footballer of the year in domestic competition it feels odd that it's the Golden Shoe it does a bit well I guess it's the best footballer so you can't distinguish glove or boot it has to be yeah. something that's a little bit nondescript that something that you wears. might wear in like a black tie occasion perhaps <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> meanwhile Chelsea had a bit of a weakness in goal and so manager Rude Hullet returned to his former club Feyenoord and signed at Ed De Hoy for 2.25 million in mm-hmm. Ju- July 1997. He was uh, at six foot six at the time, the tallest player in Chelsea's history. Mm. I think Thibaut Courtois is also six foot six, but okay. I think that's still the record for Chelsea. A fascinating fact that for really others. That is a fact. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he made his debut at Wembley in the Charity Shield. They lost on penalties to Man United. And he suffered a, a torrid league debut at the hands of Dion Dublin. The Coventry striker scored a hat-trick as Chelsea lost 3-2. And then <laughs> on his home debut, he gifted a goal to Kevin Davis of Southampton. So it's an equally traumatic home debut. But he soon settled and by the end of his first season, uh, he was celebrating two major cup victories. Mm-hmm. In 1999-2000, he set club records for most appearances with 59 
and clean sheets with 27 during a season. Uh, both sadly have been surpassed by f- f- the former by Frank Lampard, the latter by Petr Cech. And then he lost his place in the side to Carlo Cudicini. And also Mark Bosnich was signed as a, uh, another goalkeeper. So he was essentially third choice. Right. And he was then released. But he had an enormously successful time at Chelsea uh, and he accumulated 31 caps for the Netherlands. And then it's the did he really play their move. He went to Stoke City. Did he? Yeah. I which, don't remember that. For, for me, it's just such a like... I, I feel like it's a certain type of player at Stoke City. The move was in 2003, so this is pre-Tony Pulis days. Okay. But I just don't associate Ed De Hoy at all with Stoke City. He was... 38 by the time he moved there. Goodness. So it's really the, the, the twilight of his career. For, for me, he is a Chelsea goalkeeper, and I think that's largely down to the fact that late 90s, early noughties is when I, when I was getting into football. Yeah. Ed De Hoy was the, the man between the sticks, he and I, I just saw him as a Chelsea goalkeeper. And at Stoke, he was their uh, first choice goalkeeper in 2003 4. He made 38 appearances. But he soon came under competition from Steve Simonson and a young Ben Foster. Also had no idea he played for Stoke City. And then he retired in 2006, by which stage he was almost 40. So he was an interesting player, Ed De Hoy. Certainly one of those players who I just think had the look of a, a bloke down the pub. He did. Probably looked about 50 when he was 30. Yeah. Um, but a very entertaining goalkeeper. And I... Just wanted to give a nod to his brief stint at Stoke City. Yeah, I have fond memories of Ed De Hoy. I've, I've mentioned before, I used to watch a lot of Chelsea, kind of late 90s, early noughties, and um, a lot of Ed De Hoy. And I can confirm, Arthur, he is a very tall man. Um, and the reason I can confirm that is a bizarre turn of events where I once accidentally bumped into Ed De Hoy in an HMV in Reading, <laughs> which... Is a, a claim to fame that I haven't thought about until you mentioned the name. Yeah, very random segue, but I was in York the other day and I, so I walked past an HMV and I had no idea it was still going. Wow, Her <laughs> Majesty's voice, still loud and clear. <laughs> Arthur, I, I think you've taken a look at the left back as well, haven't you? I have indeed. And uh, for this one, it's actually an ex Reading and Southampton player ticking two boxes at one time you can't say we're biased exactly it's Chris Makin (laughs) (laughs) he was not my favourite Reading player I must say probably a nice guy very nice guy Um, and actually this 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 segment is about his stint at wait for it Marseille what? (laughs) what he played Chris Makin Chris Makin played for Marseille uh, there's actually an excellent interview about him, um, or with him, should I say, uh, about his Marseille adventure on the official Ligue 1 podcast called Le Beau Jeu. Oh um, and in this interview, he is almost in hysterics himself about how ridiculous the idea of him playing in France is. He says that in France, he became Chris Makin. <laughs> um, which uh, I think he missed a, missed a chance of saying Christophe, you know. But, um, yeah, it's just bizarre. After a solid start to his career with Oldham in the Premier League and two seasons in League One following their relegation, he was allowed to join Marseille on a Bosman transfer. He had an encouraging first season, making 31 appearances, although they did finish in in a disappointing 11th in Liga. And that was the end of his his adventure in Marseille. It was was a flash in the pan, it was brief, 
Uh, but then Peter Reed and Sunderland came calling. And just to kind of give a nod to the impression that he made at Marseille, he, he enjoyed it a lot. He said, I didn't want to leave Marseille, to be brutally honest. It's a massive club, huge fan base, and I loved my life there. I didn't want to come back to England. As it was, Reedy and my agent made it clear they wanted the move to happen. And back then, 500 grand was a lot. The president told me he wanted the money and said he wanted me to go. I've had a few arguments with him about it and said I'd stay and play in the reserves and fight for my place. In turn, he was just as adamant I was going. In the end, if a club doesn't want you, you can't stay. And mm. so as much as the experiment for him wasn't so much an experiment, it was more a, a, a change of scene. He took to it quite well and made yeah. a lot of appearances, but sadly the, the stay was short-lived. He was two-footed, uh, equally adept at left and right back, and as you say, could play centre-back. Um, and it was right back that he made his own during his, his stint in a golden era at Sunderland. He helped them reach a Wembley playoff final, win Division 1, as well as finish 7th in the Premier League, which oh, is okay. the club's highest ever Premier League finish. Um, and he was part of Sunderland's solid gold eleven which is where fans voted for their favourite players of all time. Now, I had no idea Chris Makin's affiliations with Sunderland were no. that strong. I didn't either. I didn't actually realise that. So this Marseille spell was before the rise of Before Chris the Marseille. rise. Oh, before before Chris really became a force in English football. That makes it all the more surprising. <laughs> um, and he was, uh, he was then sold after a, a very successful spell at Sunderland uh, to Ipswich in 2001 and would go on to, to take in spells at Leicester City, Derby, uh, Reading and Southampton, as I say. I don't remember a great deal about him uh, at Southampton, just that George Burley brought him in. I think he was his manager at Derby. Mm. Um, and he had reasonably strong injury problems at that stage in his career, but just he was fairly dependable, really yeah. did a job. <laughs> well, that's what we need at left-back in this 11 And centre-back, Ben? Well, if I said to you, Phil Babb, which team springs to mind? Probably Liverpool. Yeah, I think that was probably a fair shout, Arthur. He was a cultured centre-back, uh, and he made over 370 league appearances, of which over 100 of those were for Liverpool, like you say. Um, in 1998, Bab was involved in a, a famous blooper against Chelsea, which you might remember, uh, which ended in him desperately trying to keep a ball out the back of the net and sliding into his own goalpost with a leg either side. Oh, no. Um, oh. Brutally injuring his coccyx and <laughs> potentially something else that sounds a bit like coccyx. Um, he was born in England to a Guyanese father and an Irish mother, uh, and this enabled him to play for the Republic of Ireland. He did so 35 times, including four matches at the 94 FIFA World Cup. But the reason he makes the did he play there 11 uh, was his stint, a two-year stint, at Sporting Lisbon. <laughs> Sporting Lisbon? Yes. Um, <laughs> so this was after the Liverpool spell. He was aged sort of 29, 30 at the time, joining in 2000, having been released by the, uh, the Merseyside club. He would win the league and the cup during his time at Sporting Lisbon in Portugal. He became a regular uh, and he was voted the best foreign centre-back in the league at the time. Wow. So he really did play for Sporting Lisbon in one of the best spells of their recent history and started very regularly. 
Um, playing for them during that time was also Mario Jardel. Oh, Bolton's story. Yeah, <laughs> he played for Bolton and failed to score. But in fact, during the time that Phil Babb was there, in one season, he scored 42 goals. Wow. Including 15 penalties. Jardel's always one of those ones I've been very frustrated didn't succeed in the Premier League because yeah. he, he, I mean, throughout his career, apart from, I, I guess, the downturn arrived when... It, I'm assuming it was an Allardyce signing. It's very yeah, Allardyce. Yeah, very <laughs> The downturn happened and he just couldn't rediscover that goal-scoring form. But in Portugal, what a what a weapon. Yeah, it's it's an incredible record he has for them, actually. That was the fourth best league hall ever in Portugal and he features another few times in the top ten. He was a goal machine out there. Um, and, and it was a really talented side. They had Hugo Viana, who also kind of failed in the Premier League, but was very successful in Portugal. Uh, a young Ricardo Caresma coming through. And perhaps most notably, one of Phil Babb's teammates in Sporting Lisbon was Cristiano Ronaldo. Oh, he taught him all he knew. Well, he certainly <laughs> taught him something. Um, this is a tale that Babb um, has told a number of journalists over the years. He said, so we're doing a training session. Uh, it's a setup back four, it's attack versus defence. All the attackers are coming at you, and this little kid runs at me. He does two step overs three times and goes past me and then sticks it in the top bin. And all the lads are like, oh, Babsy, he's had you off. <laughs> so the next time he's coming at me, step over one way, step over the next, he shoots past me. I forearm chop him right across and I knock him out. Oh my god. So Phil Babb and Cristiano Ronaldo not on the best terms. But, Classic um, Babsy. Oh. Uh, amazing to think they both played together at some yeah. point during their careers. Um, if you're interested in what Babb's doing now, he does make TV appearances. And in 2006, he became an investor in Golf Punk magazine Ooh. alongside former Sunderland teammates Michael Gray, Jason McAteer, Thomas Sorensen and Stephen Wright, saving the publication from closure. Interesting. So um, there, you go. there you go, Phil. Phil, good old Phil. Yeah, Sporting Lisbon have their quite strong affiliations with, with Britain in footballing terms. You know, obviously, Eric Dyer, a staple of their academy. Mm. Um, actually, Eric Dyer was a funny one. In my research, I found that he was in Everton's academy before he went to Sporting really? Lisbon. Bizarre. I didn't know that. Um, and also Ryan Gould. Yes, do you remember him? Yeah, I yeah. do remember him. So they, Scottish yeah. sensation. But those are the young British talents. And to have someone, frankly, not British, Irish, but someone who, who's in the, in the peak of their career, really, mm. at 30 years old, they're doing... You know they're playing the best football of their lives, mm. and, and Phil Babb absolutely ripping it up in in Portugal. Yeah, who'd have thought it? Who'd have thought it? So who's alongside Phil Arthur at centre back? I've chosen a legend of the game. It's Marco Materazzi. Oh yeah, I mean that Babb and Materazzi love that. Absolutely love it. And this is actually a fairly well known stint, to be honest. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if many of the listeners know of Marco Materazzi's spell at. Everton. Mm. But I do feel, however, it's it's worthy of inclusion simply because his time there was so unlikely and and fairly tumultuous, to be honest. The defender moved to Goodison Park in 98-99 for 2.7 million after helping Perugia bounce back into Italy's top flight. Um, during that, that bounce-back campaign, he scored five goals in 33 appearances and was an absolute rock at the back. 
Uh, and he soon made an impression on the blue half of Merseyside. He was 25 at the time and he scored the winning goal and was sent off in only his eighth game against Huddersfield. Uh, in 27 appearances, uh, the centre-back amassed more red cards, three, than goals, two, mm. uh, before returning to Perugia, netting Everton a £1 million profit. It was just so flash in the pan, his time there. Uh, for a defender who would go on to make 275 appearances for Inter Milan and 41 for Italy, establishing himself truly as one of the best centre-backs in the world. He found it pretty hard to settle at Everton. One story in The Athletic recounts, Teammates remember a pre-season tour of Tuscany, where the squad were informed that they would not be able to eat at the hotel's restaurant one Sunday evening. According to one source, Matarazzi is said to have stormed off in a huff and was later found eating a bowl of tomatoes in the hotel lobby. (laughs) (laughs) Just bizarre. And across the whole of his autobiography, he devotes just half a page to his time at Everton. Another reason for his departure was a desire to play internationally at a time where players wouldn't likely play for Italy if they didn't ply their trade in Serie A. He said, the Azzurri dream pushed me back. As a player, he was aggressive, good in the air, comfortable with the ball at his feet and could pick a pass. Um, This aggression uh, that he had that I talked about was clear for all to see when he was the recipient of Zidane's infamous headbutt at the 2006 World Cup. Um, But he certainly just feels like a player who slipped through the net at Goodison Park. They had a real talent on their hands, but he didn't really want to stay and the rest is history. To, to sum up Matarazzi as a player, in his career, 60 yellow cards, 7 red cards, and the Times ranked Matarazzi at number 45 on their list of 50 hardest footballers in history. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that pick, actually. I, I, now that I see pictures of him in an Everton jersey, it just doesn't feel like a natural fit at all, does no. it? And he was clearly someone who didn't mind mixing things up because he actually went on to be the player manager of an Indian side, Chennaiin, at the end of his career. So uh, Marco Matarazzi, did he play there? Yes, he did. He did. At Everton. And at right back then? Another Italian. Okay. Gianluca Festa. Okay. So Gianluca Festa, um, a fearless utility defender known for his strength in the air and ability to organise the back line. He was gritty, he was no nonsense, and he had an eye for scoring goals, having scored at least once in every season of his career since 1993. Wow. He'd long been a standout performer in whatever he did. He was an Italian tennis champion as a junior, a martial arts expert, uh, an army captain during his national service, all of which happened before this football career of his blossomed. And he played at a decent level for Inter Milan and Roma in the 90s. But probably his most famous spell, and what many people will remember him for, is his time at Middlesbrough. He became a cult hero there. He signed in 1997 and he'd go on to play 136 games for the club. He suffered relegation in his first season, um, despite them having players like Mark Schwarzer, Emerson, Janino, Ravanelli. Um, But he would remain loyal and they would bounce back with Fester's stock remaining pretty high. Um, So Middlesbrough 
fans will very much consider him one of their own and I imagine the name will will spring up that memory of Teesside teammate of Vladimir Kinden unless exactly exactly (laughs) but many fans won't remember his brief spell at the end of his career at Portsmouth oh yeah um, age 33 he spent just one season on the south coast um, and he'd actually make 29 appearances in a promotion season as Portsmouth reached the top flight for the very first time. Um, so he was actually pivotal in getting Portsmouth to the Premier League, but he left after that season, so it was kind of little known. He played as a third centre-back alongside Arjan Dazou and Hayden Fox, um, where he transitioned from being a right-back at Borough, uh, and he proved a very popular figure both on and off the pitch. It was fitting that Fester should end his Pompey career in the final game of the season at Bradford, having already helped the team to promotion, uh, and he scored. In honour of this, the entire team that day wore his own brand of boots. <laughs> was it just a desire to return home to Italy after that that, that that made him leave? Because by all accounts, he was successful there, he, he did well, and you know, you would think that being a firm fixture in a promotion outfit, you know, you would be considered worthy of inclusion in the Premier League team the next season. But clearly for for Gianluca, that wasn't the case. I presume so. I mean, he actually returned to Cagliari uh, and helped them win promotion to Serie A the year (laughs) after. So it was a brief spell at Portsmouth. I don't know whether he was homesick or or just wanted to to head back towards his family. But um, a, a player synonymous with one club that actually had a much bigger impact on another um, that many people won't know about. Well, we hope you enjoyed the defensive line for the Did He Play There 11, but we're going to take a short break now uh, and just discuss these random moves a bit more generally. Sometimes players make a surprising move to improve their quality of life. They may be following the money in China or the weather in Turkey or around the Med. So we've decided to each choose a club that we think would be an intriguing or attractive option for someone looking for something a little different in their career, perhaps someone out of favour in the Premier League. We're going to try and sell them to you. I suppose like brand ambassadors for these clubs, Arthur. When it comes to an interesting move, a lot of the time it is the money, as you say, that that tempts a player out to China, to the MLS perhaps... But I think there's a few niche teams that deserve these players uh, and potentially these players could, could help fire them to great things. So tell us about a club, Arthur, that you think people should make an obscure and random move to. Maybe someone who's out of favour, like a Harry Winks at Tottenham. Well, I could imagine a Harry Winks really thriving at FC Vaduz. <laughs> Tell us more. Yeah. So obviously, Vaduz, the capital of Liechtenstein. Of course, it is. Uh, and Liechtenstein themselves don't actually have a domestic league. In fact, all of their teams, I think there are about seven or eight, mm. uh, they all play in the Swiss league system as guest clubs. Ah, oh, yeah. I think um, I knew that. Yeah, it's a bit niche, really. There's only one of their teams that actually is any good, frankly FC Vaduz, who have kind of 
essentially been Swiss football's yo-yo club, perhaps mm. the the West Brom of Switzerland. Nice. Uh, they've had their, their periods of time in the Swiss Super League, but most of the time they play in the Swiss Challenge League, which is the second division. And the quirk about FC Vaduz that I think is brilliant is that they make it into the Europa Conference League second qualifying round if they win the Liechtenstein Cup. Since 1997, they've won 21 of 22 with an aggregate score of 104-15 in those finals. And that includes an 11-0. So I think that really displays quite how superior they are when it comes to Liechtenstein football. So a player who chooses FC Vaduz as their location would virtually guaranteed to have a crack at European competition every season. Amazing. Uh, including the potential glory of giving them their first ever trip to the group stages of the competition because frankly they are always a little bit out of their depth. They played a stadium called the Rheinpark Stadium which is unbelievably picturesque. It's in the shadow of snow-capped mountains wow. and also plays host to the national team. And to top it all off, their manager is Liechtenstein legend and one-time up-for-grabs nominee, Mario Frick. Okay, of course it is. <laughs> Love that. So who wouldn't want to learn off the magician? Mario I have to Frick. say, I, the more you describe that, the more that feels more appealing than a short loan spell at Scunthorpe. <laughs> who have you gone for, Ben? Well, I have picked uh, a side in Asia, a Japanese club called Shimitsu S-Pulse. <laughs> They are located in Shimitsuku in Shitsuoka, which is a very unfortunate name for a place. Um, They were founded in 1991 as one of the original J-League teams, and um, they had something interesting about them, that originally they would only select players from the prefecture to play for the team, a little bit like you see in Bilbao with Basque players. They are one of the most consistent performers in cup competitions, having made 10 appearances uh, across the Emperor's Cup and the League Cup. Uh, But they've only actually won each competition once, and they've never won the J-League. In 2020, so last season, they were 16th of 18 in the league, and they're in another relegation battle now. So you wouldn't necessarily go for success at Shimitsu S-Pulse, but there are other reasons why this club might be tempting. You wouldn't be the only expat to go over and play for them. Freddie Lundberg went to play for Shimitsu S-Pulse for a brief spell at the end of his career. And also, former Reading manager and Welsh left-back Mark Bowen (laughs) had a spell at Shimitsu S-Pulse. So it has been done before, and you can see why. It's a spectacular part of the world. You can see the iconic Mount Fuji from the stadium near Hondera. It's it's amazing. It's well worth looking up. A recent ranking by Remitly, a global money transfer service, also revealed that the country people most want to move to is in fact not Japan, but Japan did come second. So it's the second country (laughs) that people want to move to, just in behind Canada. Oh, yeah, Canada, lovely. Yeah. Also about Shitsuoka generally, I've found some facts um, in case you're eyeing up whether it'd be a suitable location for you. Um, The largest amount of tuna caught by Japanese fishermen comes through the Shimitsu port. I'm wondering whether it's the... uh, Have you you seen Seaspiracy? Yeah, I have. It might be that tuna... Maybe. Who knows? I mean, that's the intrigue of this club. (laughs) Um, There's a sushi museum you can visit. 
Uh, there's a zoological garden for midweek after training, um, which has 1,500 types of rare cacti. Also, one of the great locations you can visit, you can learn about iron smelting at the Nirayama Reverbatory Furnace, where they used to make cannons. So Harry Winks will enjoy that. Oh, God. You can go to the seaside in the summer on a boat ride, and then you can also go skiing in the same place in the winter. So wow, perfect enough. for people with big uh, big dreams and it's only one hour to tokyo by yeah. train if you get bored of the iron and zoological garden wow you wouldn't be the first to join shimitsu and i think you could have a great time yeah i agree and and ben has earned himself a, a place in the shimitsu tourism board thank you well done you thanks Well, that was an unusual interlude, but we're returning to the midfield of our 11, the did he play there 11. Which unusual player and club combination have you gone for in the midfield, Arthur? So I've gone for Fabio Rockenbach. Oh, Middlesbrough. Correct. In my mind, Rockenbach is a Middlesbrough and actual, he's a sporting Lisbon icon as yes, well, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. But in reality, he was signed by Barcelona in 2001 was and he? hailed as... Pep Guardiola's successor in the heart of midfield. You're kidding. I don't <laughs> so see true. him as that sort of player at all. I don't either. And actually, he was only ever on loan at Sporting Lisbon from oh, Barcelona. Okay. Um, his signing for Barcelona was made off the back of an impressive 2001, uh, beginning when, aged just 19 at the time, the midfielder was part of Luis Felipe Scolari's Brazil squad for the Confederations Cup in Japan and South Korea. He was introduced at half-time in the opening match and then made all of his seven international caps as a 19-year-old. So you can see his career tailed off. Mm. <laughs> Rockenbach was identified as a potential Guardiola 2.0 and was bought in for around £9 million alongside fellow South American youngsters Giovanni and Javier Saviola. Mm. But things didn't go for plan for Rockenbach. Barcelona endured two disappointing campaigns and not even a great goal against Liverpool in the Champions League was enough to convince the Catalans of Rockenbach's merits. That's the kind of goal that, for me, should make me remember his time with Barcelona, but it's just completely disappeared from my mind. He enjoyed better days in Portugal uh, in a two-year loan with Sporting Lisbon in 2003-5, to which was part of the deal that saw Ricardo Caresma move the other way. You mentioned Ricardo Caresma earlier. For me, him playing for Sporting Lisbon is another one that I think is a did he really play there because mm. I remember he's a Porto icon. So to yeah. play for Sporting was, was a bit bizarre, really. But he scored eight goals in his debut season and added more long-range strikes to his portfolio, including an absolute belter of a free kick against Feyenoord. And in his second year, sporting were UEFA Cup runners-up. He then joined Steve McLaren's Middlesbrough on deadline day in August 2005. And the following May, he picked up another UEFA Cup silver medal uh, as Borough lost to Sevilla in the final. And he spent two more seasons of fairly mediocre football in the Premier League after that. He showed glimpses of talent that Middlesbrough fans had experienced in the form of Juninho mm. um, but sadly it was it was few and far between in his final game for Borough he scored an absolute worldie of a free kick and grabbed two assists in an 8-1 drubbing of Man City 
and he left on a free two days later. Oh, gutting! Like just a, this is what you could have had, but yeah, I, I just can't can't perform like that on a regular basis. Frustrating player. Very much so. I mean, I thought Rockenback was a decent Premier League player, um, but he doesn't strike me as the sort that would play alongside the likes of Xavi and Puyol and De Boer at Barcelona during a successful time. That that really doesn't doesn't correlate at all. Um, he's also had quite a fascinating life after football, Arthur. I don't know whether you've read about it. I have a little bit. Yeah. So in 2011, he was arrested by the police who found birds in his possession used for cockfighting. Yes. And he's since been arrested on other charges involving blood sports, which isn't great. It's quite it's, bizarre. It isn't, well. it isn't great. And I actually have a, a quote for you here. Uh, the player's father, Juarez Rockenbach, denied any wrongdoing on the part of Fabio. He said, quote, The farm is for raising chickens, not fighting cocks. They also said there was a boar, but it was just a pig. This is someone who is jealous of him. Mm. Six years later, Rockenbach was arrested following the discovery of 89 fighting cocks. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually, um, his career has developed into breeding Criollo horses. Wow. Uh, so hopefully... They're a little bit more lucrative than uh, than, than roosters. Are. Yeah, yeah. An interesting player never really delivered on that spark. And I think I'd be interested actually if Borough fans can get in touch to to let us know of your memories of Fabio as a player because I, I think he promised so much but just never really delivered. That could well be true. But perfect for did he play there um, or did he really fight Cox Eleven as well? <laughs> Um, that would work. Uh, we're saying cocks a lot during this we episode, are. I have to say. Cox six. Yeah, cocks are cocks. Anyway, alongside Fabio Rockenbach in the centre of the midfield um, is a player that Manchester United fans will not remember fondly, and that's Eric Jemba Jemba. Oh, yes, he was signed alongside Cleberson, wasn't he? Yes, he was. I've, I've not got a problem with Eric Jemba Jemba. Um, he was a 5 foot 11 Cameroonian midfielder. He had a very promising start to his career at Nantes, uh, and that prompted a move to Man United for 3.5 million, where he was seen as the long-term replacement for Roy Keane. <laughs> but that didn't happen, sadly. Uh, it didn't work out. He played just 20 games under Sir Alex, uh, and there were several reports that fame went to his head and he, he was bankrupt, sadly, by the age of 26, having reportedly owned 10 4x4s and having masses of bank accounts all across the world um, and accumulated huge tax debts. He then went on to play for Aston Villa for a brief period of time where he would get the chant, so good they named him twice, which was somewhat ironic because it was a failed spell at Aston Villa. Um, but where I want to draw your attention is a bizarre move to the SPL where he played for St Mirren. St Mirren? Yes. <laughs> what? Yeah, Eric Jemba Jemba, um, after spells in Qatar and Denmark and Israel, signed for the Paisley Club St Mirren in 2014, aged 32 years old. He was unveiled in a St Mirren shirt wearing a Scottish tweed flat cap and holding an advertisement for the SPL Top Sticker Collection, which oh is quite random. 
Sadly, this would also be a failed spell for Eric. He gave away a penalty on his home debut in a 1-0 defeat to Aberdeen. Uh, and after making just three appearances in all competitions, he was released by the club um, and he failed to secure a place in the Cameroon squad for the next World Cup. So that was no goals, two yellow cards in Scotland, and he couldn't outmuscle John McGinn, a young John McGinn, and Jim Goodwin from the St Mirren starting lineup. That's no surprise, really. That's mm. a that's a force of nature in the centre midfield. It certainly is. He had a, he had a lot on his plate. Poor old Eric. I picked Eric Jemba Jemba because I felt it was the most nostalgic of these names. But uh, in my research, I did notice that there were several former SPL players that I hadn't realised that could have made the did he play there eleven. Aaron Moy. Oh yeah. He also played for St Mirren. Believe it or not. <laughs> um, Ricardo Fuller had a spell at Hearts, which I don't remember. Tamuri Ketspire, of course, that famous Newcastle outburst. Well, he played for Dundee later in his career. Uh, Ricardo Vazte played for Hibernian. Yeah. And Jason Scotland, appropriately named, yes. played for Dundee United. Oh, there we go. Returned home, mm. in a sense. In a, yeah, in some way, I guess. <laughs> uh, and Freddie Jungberg for, for Celtic as well. Yes. That's always slightly uh, confused me. It uh, is. Twilight of his career, clearly before his uh, spell in Japan. Shimitsu, yeah. <laughs> 100%. Very interesting pick. Eric Jemba Jemba, so much promised when he signed. And I guess there's there's a certain aura around any Man United transfer under Sir Alex Ferguson. You kind of think this is going to be the real deal. Uh, I think when he signed, from memory, Cleberson, uh, who was unveiled alongside him, was, was he had braces, I think. <laughs> yes, I think he did. Um, yeah. And I was just thinking, who are these two young, young starlets? Yeah. But, uh, sounds like he had a very interesting career, a bit of a journey. Mm. Um, so fair play. And you've actually got the attacking midfielder as well today? Yes, I wanted someone in front of Eric and Fabio that could provide a little something different, some creativity. Um, so I've gone for the bizarre spell at Blackburn Rovers of Yildiray Bashtuk. Oh, I loved him. Yeah. Bash, Bashturk, Bashturk, I said. Bashturk, yeah. Bashturk. He, um, he was a Turkish midfielder, a diminutive attacking player with great vision and passing prowess. Can I just ask, is diminutive essentially just saying he's small? Yeah, it's a okay. fun Just way. a nice way just of saying... Really, okay. really, it's like a classic footballer's way of saying he's short. <laughs> He had a very successful career, and that's why this Blackburn Rovers spell was such a surprise. He was capped 49 times for his national team, representing them at the 2002 World Cup, where they finished in third place. And in the same year, he also appeared for Bayer Leverkusen in the 2002 UEFA Champions League final. He finished ninth that year in the Ballon d'Or, ahead of Ronaldinho, Vieira, Cafu and Figo. So you can imagine that Blackburn fans were pretty excited when in 2010, towards the end of his career, it was announced that Bashduk had agreed to join Blackburn Rovers on a free transfer after his uh, contract at Stuttgart had been terminated. A player with real pedigree that had the potential to create the unexpected in a fairly pragmatic Sam Allardyce side. Um, and teammate Vince Greller said, I think he could give us something new and something different. He can be a star player for us. I think he's got everything. Sadly, Vince Grella's prediction didn't turn out to be correct. And that's why this did he play their spell is perhaps so surprising. Uh, Bashtuk was only handed one start for Blackburn against Wolverhampton Wanderers, but he was subbed at half time. And this would turn out to be his only Premier League appearance. 
not offered a contract extension at the end of the season. Really incredible that a player that played at the very highest level failed to make it at an ailing Premier League side. Was it simply a lack of fitness at that stage? I guess if Sam Allardyce subs you at half time, he's simply disgusted in your mm. performance, and and clearly that's that's the final straw, you know. I think it was a lack of fitness, and whilst reports that I've read online suggest Bashtuk was quite a feisty and determined individual, he was heading towards the end of his career and perhaps didn't see the appeal of working hard to get into that Blackburn side. He maybe assumed he would do anyway, and it maybe it isn't surprising when you look back. He was a player of several incredible performances uh, and one of those most notably was in the Champions League draw against um, Manchester United at Old Trafford where he was man of the match and received a standing ovation from the United fans having played a part in both of Leverkusen's goals. Yeah, an absolute magician on the ball and actually that Turkey 2002 World Cup team was a a bit of a lethal team. I felt they had lot of, a lot of good players capable of changing games and war paint wearing Rushtu in goal. <laughs> yeah. uh, they had Hakan Suka up front, Hassan Sass. Uh, Muzzy Izzet yeah. was part yeah, of that yeah, yeah, I imagine. I didn't actually... Uh, obviously, he is Turkish, but also English, is he not? Yeah, is I he... don't know how many games he played for Turkey. Yeah, well, there we go. Great pick, Ben. Very much enjoyed. Rockenbach may very well fancy his chances from here. Riverside expects a sixth goal here. Rockenbach, oh, they've got it! One of the best free kicks you're likely to see this season. Right, the front line for the did he play there 11. Uh, we've got one name up for grabs and we're lucky to have a couple of fantastic guests who are going to be giving nominations. Uh, you will find a poll on Twitter where you can vote for the final position um, in the Diddy Play There 11. But first of all, Arthur, kick us off with the front line. So I've gone for Danny Dicchio. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I suppose when you consider the fact that his dad was Italian and his full first name is Daniele, okay. you shouldn't really see his brief stint in Italian football as surprising. Mm. But he did play for Sampdoria. Really? Yep. Because I always see him as like a football league player. So do I. Championship level. A kind of an English football journeyman. Essentially, he burst onto the scene as a 19-year-old at QPR. And he took his chance after Les Ferdinand's departure to Newcastle. Uh, and he scored on his league debut against Aston Villa and then forged a, a strong strike partnership with Kevin Gallon. Uh, do you remember oh, I do remember <laughs> Kevin Gallon, yeah. Um, he got the sort of mandatory for a starlet uh, England under-21 cap, a solitary one, mm. uh, in 1995, uh, whilst he developed an off-field passion too. Mm. Uh, Francesco Albanese article on Mondo Calcio News said, and this is Google translated, in addition to football, however, Dicchio was a music lover and was crazy about culture club. Not only... <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Not only that, he discovered a certain vocation for the DJ console, becoming a sort of baby prodigy as a disc jockey. (laughs) (laughs) Just bizarre. Anyway, so a DJ and a footballer. In 1997, his contract was up for renewal. However, QPR's offer impressed neither, neither him nor his father. Uh, His father was frankly itching for Danny to head to Syria. 
even reportedly creating highlight reel DVDs of his son's performances and sending them to AC Milan. (laughs) Sadly, the AC Milan move was not forthcoming, and after declining several offers from Venezia and Torino, uh, Dicchio found himself at Sven-Goran Eriksson's Sampdoria, uh, courtesy of a Bosman transfer. Unfortunately, Sven left shortly after for Lazio, and he took star striker Roberto Mancini with him. The task, therefore, was to find a partner up front for Vincenzo Montella, who was a superstar in the making, absolutely banging them in in Syria. And our friend Francesco Albanese from Mondo Calcio describes the situation that Dicchio found himself in. In addition to Dicchio, Klinsman, Tovalieri, Signori, Biak, and Paco Suarez arrived in the summer. The attack became more crowded than ever. The good giant Biak turned out to be a colossal bin. (laughs) (laughs) As well as Paco Suarez. It was an inexplicable choice on behalf of the Samp management, as Dicchio was good enough to bet on. So essentially, he never really got given his opportunity in Italian football. New manager Luis Minotti neither warmed to nor could find room in his passing base system for a player like Dicchio. He was, after all, six foot three. Uh, he was a target man, strong in the air, very much the focal point of attack. Sources clash online when it comes to his stats with Sampdoria. Wikipedia suggests he was absolutely you know, colossal at Sampdoria. Two goals in two appearances. Wow. Um, but Transfer Marked, which I think is a slightly more legit source, says that he never played a league game for them and only played 20 minutes in the UEFA Cup, not scoring. Oh. So um, I think it was a, a very, very brief, unsuccessful stint in Sampdoria. And then he made his way back to England with Sunderland via a loan at Lecce. And after stints over the next 10 years with West Brom, Derby, Millwall and Preston, as you say, he was a bit of a championship journeyman. Mm. He ended his career in the MLS and he spent three years with Toronto FC. I mean, he made a pretty successful life of it, I guess, even though he didn't succeed in Italy. Yeah. I'm not sure he is quite good enough to play in the very (laughs) peak of Italian football, but um, good to get Danny Dicchio in. I'm going to name another striker who is pretty famous, to be fair. But in terms of did he play there, this is a spell at a club that completely passed me by until I started researching. Seydou Doombia. Yes. Played for Newcastle. What? Yeah, do you remember he's, that? He's, he's a, a speed merchant. He That's is. the only thing I remember about him. Absolutely <laughs> rapid. And the sort of player you would sign on FIFA. Yeah. I mean, I remember doing that several times was because he, he was so quick. Was he CSK Moscow or something? That's absolutely right. Alongside he, Wagner Love. Yeah, what a strike force. <laughs> I was going to say. I mean, he actually scored 61 goals in 95 games for CSK in Moscow. And wow. um, many of those in the Champions League as well. So playing at a really high level. Uh, And he would play for some bizarre teams over his career, to be fair. In his native Ivory Coast, Japan, uh, he played for Sion in Switzerland. And he's actually, I don't know whether currently, but he was last at Hamrun Spartans in Malta. Uh, Of course, of course. Yeah. Maltese powerhouse. Um, So a bit (laughs) random, to be honest, but I, I really don't remember his spell at Newcastle at all. It was a three-game stint following a loan in 2016. 
uh, and he was never a hit. He didn't actually score. He made three sub appearances, and Newcastle were relegated to the Championship that season. Um, I did a little digging as to why it didn't work out for this speed merchant at Newcastle, and the Chronicle explained that Sadu refused to train during the week. What? He he didn't like training during the week because he was fearful that he would get injured and not be able to play at the weekends. So he just didn't turn up. Sorry, is that something that he replicated throughout his enormously successful career? Yes, <laughs> which was the most bizarre so, thing I read. So sorry, he would he would play a game on Saturday, presumably mm-hmm. with no training, and then he'd just train on Sunday. He wouldn't or... expect to. He would just expect to turn up for matches and play. Wow. And apparently. During his time at CSKA Moscow, he was allowed to get away with this and would start every week, regardless of whether he turned up for training or not. Um, and this attitude didn't go very down very well with Rafael Benitez at Newcastle, as you can imagine. And so they let him go, having only played three games. Um, but again, a name that's so famous, and I just have no idea how I've missed that spell in you'd, 2016. You'd think that that sort of thing would come out in the wash when they're scouting the player yeah like, you would wouldn't you yeah so we've got some feedback that he just doesn't train Benitez can go well we won't sign him then yeah um, it, it's odd perhaps they were just overwhelmed by what they'd found on FIFA okay so it's time for up for grabs uh, as Ben said earlier we've got two nominations today from friends of the show first up it's Seb Stafford Bloor, who's a freelance journalist. He writes for The Athletic, writes for 442, and he's currently a content strategist at TIFO Football. Uh, let's see who he's nominated. Okay, Arthur, mine is a little bit off the beaten track, but it's a Northern Irish forward called Phil Gray. Uh, he had quite an interesting career, started at Tottenham, spent a bit of time in France, I think. Anyway, he played for Oxford United, and not a big team, but they were they were kind of sinking to new lows. And they were down in, I think, what's now League One, and he was sort of trotting around at the top of their formation. Must have been about 32 or 33. Now, I remember uh, standing by the pitch one day, he just passed a ball into a winger called Chris Hackett, and the winger returned the pass and played a 1-2 in behind the defence. And he just stopped running. I don't think his fitness was quite what it had been by then. Looked at him and just said... Chris, you're the one with the fucking pace. And then just turned his shoulders and walked away. I don't know why I remember that. Uh, I also don't really... I don't know why he sticks in my mind. I don't know whether he's truly that incongruous. Uh, he was probably of Oxford standard at the time. Scored quite a few goals. But it was to stay a very, very strange short-term marriage. Kind of symptomatic of where that club was at the time. Where he was in his career. And it was, yeah, just good fun. And I always remember that. I always remember the expression on his face. Chris Hackett would have been maybe... Um, in his early 20s or maybe even a teenager at the time and he kind of skulked off and all embarrassed in front of the home fans at the old manor ground which was kind of like a collection of just different coloured sheds I think so uh, yeah that's mine okay I'm going to be honest that's a completely brand new name for me I have to say though what a shout because not only did Phil Gray have that spell Seb mentions on uh, at Oxford United he also played for Fortuna Sittard during his career <laughs> so um, yeah Northern Irish striker who wasn't afraid of a, a rogue move absolutely fascinating suggestion there and the second nomination for Up for Grabs has come in from Devon Rowcliffe Devon, thank you so much for getting in touch. He is a football writer, uh, and I've recently purchased his book because it sounds fantastic. It's called Who Ate All the Squid? Let's see who he nominates. 
My nomination for a striker who ended up at an offbeat or unexpected team is Jamie Curitan. As a youngster with Norwich City's academy, Curitan was approached by Alex Ferguson and asked to sign with Manchester United for what would later become known as the famous Class of 92. Despite being a Man U supporter himself, Curitan surprisingly turned the deal down to stay at Norwich. Curitan soon succumbed to the temptation of boozing and nightclubbing and dropped down to the third tier of English football despite his tremendous talent. After seven years at Bristol Rovers in Reading, a contract offer came from South Korea. Journeyman manager Ian Porterfield had taken over at Busan Icons, former K-League winners and once Afro-Asian club champions. Porterfield intended to build his newly inherited Korean squad around Kiriton's goal-scoring prowess. But Kiriton would suffer from chronic homesickness, thwarting his plans. You can read more about Kiriton's Asian exploits in my book, Who Ate All the Squid? Football Adventures in South Korea, from Pitch Publishing in paperback and ebook. Oh, Jamie Kiriton. I have so many fond memories from uh, from his time at Reading, Arthur. And we've seen him play for Exeter, right? We have indeed. He plundered goals in League Two when we were down there. And I think he's still banging them in at 40 whatever. He's actually one of only nine players in the world to have played over a thousand games in his career and he's still going, playing at Enfield Town right now. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Ben, have you nominated one? I have actually, Arthur, and I've gone for a player who also has a bit of football league um, stalwart about him. That's Gifton Noel Williams. Oh, yeah, okay, so slightly rings a bell. Yeah. Do you play for like I'm for some reason I got Southend United in my mind. I don't know why. <laughs> don't know why. Did he, he didn't. did he play there? No, Arthur. <laughs> no, he didn't. Um but he was a talented striker. Um he could have been so much more if it wasn't for a serious knee injury that he um he unfortunately suffered from and the arthritis that followed. He played for Watford, Stoke and Burnley in the late nineties and early noughties. Age 19, he was Watford's top goalscorer in the 98-99 season where they were promoted to the Premier League and it seemed like the world was at his feet. That's when the injury struck and he says, Elton John saved his career. His quote, I got told at the time I wouldn't be able to play no more. I was lucky enough that Elton John was living in America and saw an article about a drug I could take and they paid for me to get the treatment and stuff like that. And stuff like that. I don't know why I added that bit of the quote. Um, But the reason I think he could warrant a place in the Did He Play There 11 is that he went a little bit off the radar in 2007. And that's because he joined Real Mercia for a fee of around £50,000, becoming the only, only the second English player to represent the Spanish side after Tom Thompson, who was player coach in the 1920s. He played 10 times, scoring four goals in just 288 minutes and helped Mercia get promoted to La Liga. And at one point, before the next season started, it was only him and David Beckham that were the two English players in La Liga's rosters. Unfortunately, though, he did get sold before he'd play a La Liga game. He went to Elche uh, on the 19th of July. He talks quite fondly about his spell in Spain. He says, I think it was my agent. I don't know what magic he did, but he pulled a rabbit out of the hat from somewhere. Training in the sunshine, it makes you happy. And he was incredibly popular with the fans in the dressing room um, for his joker status, apparently. He liked to play practical jokes on people. Brilliant. 
a little fact about Mercia, just in case you're interested. Um, they actually now play in the fourth tier of Spanish football, having been relegated for non-compliance with La Liga regulations, essentially debt. Um, their nickname is the Paprika Men, <laughs> in homage to their scarlet-coloured strips. <laughs> the Paprika Men. Yeah. Oh. Arthur, I think you've thrown one into the mix as well. I have indeed, and it's Carlton Cole. Carlton Cole. Indeed. He played for West Ham, I know that. He did. He was a Chelsea Academy graduate. I and did know that, yeah. he ended up at Celtic. I didn't know that. <laughs> I just completely associate him with West Ham and Chelsea, as you mm. say. So he only played five games up in Scotland for Celtic. But going back to the beginning of his career, he was at Chelsea. He was seen as a huge talent and, and was then moved out on loan after Abramovich arrived and spent big on strikers. He eventually found his new permanent club in West Ham. He played 234 times over nine seasons, becoming a bit of a club legend for them and scoring 59 times. And then the Celtic move arrived. He said, when Celtic called and said they wanted me, I just ran over. It's <laughs> a very long way to run. <laughs> Proving his fitness at his old age. He said, being at Celtic is not about the money. It's about wearing the shirt with pride. Celtic are in a great position to win trophies. And I want to add that to my career. It's almost a bit of a slight on West Ham yeah, there, I feel. His debut there was quite entertaining. Uh, he contributed towards one of the ugliest goals of all time, I would say. <laughs> A Lee Griffiths drive was parried by the Inverness goalkeeper and Cole took a very, very heavy, miscontrolled touch. He tried to get the ball down for a shot at goal. Uh, He does a kind of forward roll and he handballs the ball, but the referee doesn't see it. And the Inverness defender then tamely puts the ball in his own net. It's just, just a disgusting goal, to be honest. Um, But I think the, the issue was... He was playing for Celtic uh, at a time uh, where they, 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 they did win the SPL, so he did get some silverware, but they weren't doing particularly well. They had Ronnie Dyler in charge at the time, um, and he didn't do so well there. Uh, and Carlton had some pretty severe kind of fitness issues at that stage in his career. I think he thought it was going to be a bit of a holiday up there. Um, another thing, I had absolutely no idea... He- Oh. Okay, that was a seriously dramatic moment here at 11HQ. My computer just ran out of battery. And that, oh, was Ben's relief. Yeah, utter relief. I mean, I'm, I feel great now. Now that I know. We're all good. Everything's fine. We're through the worst. And I was actually just going to say that I had no idea Carlton Cole played seven times for England. Oh, I did. I, I just didn't see him as an England international. Yeah, I, I remember him playing a few times, actually. Okay. So that's cool. There we Are you go. glad we came back on for that? I'm really glad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. Carlton Cole is a great suggestion. And uh, do head over to Twitter, because it's your choice who makes the 11. Um, at 11pod, that's the word and not the number. The, the tallest of players, but probably is the best in the air out of all of them at these sort of situations. Wise puts it into the mix. There's the header, there's the goal, and it's Danny Dicchio who puts no one in front. What a sweet, sweet.
And so on the bench today, uh, a few names, as per usual, that we struggled to leave out, but we had to, because simply there's only space for 11. Yeah. Um, first up, I've gone for Julian Faubert oh. um, for his stint at Real Madrid. Bizarre. Very well-known stint, I feel, but also in a similar vein to Marco Materazzi, worthy of inclusion simply because how on earth did that transfer happen? You must have the best agent known to man. Completely. Uh, and secondly as well, I'd, I'd like to raise uh, Sylvain Dista, who's known obviously for his stints at Everton and Portsmouth, but I had no idea his first stint in, in England was with Newcastle. No, I don't think I did either. <laughs> well, actually, his um, his defensive partner was one that I wanted to get in, Joseph Yobo. Oh, yeah? Did you know he went to Norwich on loan? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. No, don't remember that. Um, and also Jay Bothroyd, another quite famous spell abroad. Um, he kind of revived his career at Perugia out oh, in, uh, yes. in Italy. So uh, he could have made it in, but he didn't. So that's enough of that. Indeed. So that was our Did He Really Play There 11. And to run you through the team, we've got Ed DeHoy in goal. Uh, we've got Gianluca Fester at right back. Phil Babb and Marco Materazzi in the centre. And Chris Makin at left back. We've got Eric Jemba Jemba and Fabio Rockenbach in the middle. With Yildrai Bashturk playing ahead of them. And up front, we've got Danny Dicchio, Sado Dumbia, and a choice of yours. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.